0: give you our thanks for a beautiful day, for the privilege, the pleasure of gathering together as your people to worship, to serve you, to fellowship and encourage one another. We ask your blessing upon this time that you would give us clarity in our thoughts and in speaking and hearing, that you would um, help us to understand difficult things, to keep it all in our minds, and pray that you would uh, grant me the ability to communicate clearly this morning and some very difficult things, and that our time would be profitably spent for your glory, and that you would use this to equip us, to edify us, and encourage us together in our faith and in your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, this three-part series on uh, really the bodily, it started out to be the bodily resurrection. We talked about the nature of bodily resurrection, and then we talked about the timing of bodily resurrection. And this whole series on the bodily resurrection and the timing of the resurrections in Scripture has kind of been rudely interrupted by Jess and Brian Wood who have come in and had to fill in during the weeks. <laughs> so it's really been sort of stretched out over a long period of time. And I had two options for this morning. We could either, I could either um, deal with what we're going to deal with this morning or we could begin the creation evolution thing. And I opted for this simply because we had some questions and I thought, well, this would be a good time to deal with the answers to these questions in light of the fact that it wasn't just but a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago that we that we dealt with the timing of the resurrection. So you remember on the chalkboard, it makes my hands feel weird just even thinking about it, on the chalkboard and we sketched out the timing of the first resurrection, the second resurrection and what those were and the phases and the, eschatological time frame, a couple people asked, you know, get the cushiony ones, that's the way this, yeah, a couple people said, what would have been helpful, and it was Debbie and Thomas both who raised this issue, Said it would have been helpful if we could have compare and contrast what other people would say about the resurrections and when they happen in the timeline, because we throw away around terms like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, preterism, uh, full preterism, hyper-preterism, partial preterism, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. All those type of words that describe all of these things. But there's no picture in your mind like what I drew on the board a couple weeks ago regarding the timing of these resurrections. So what I figured I would do today is we will talk about what each of these viewpoints is. And then I'm going to sketch out on my other whiteboard that I brought in, the other whiteboard, the three different sort of timelines for of, es- of eschatology. So you can kind of have a picture in your mind about what each of these is. And then we're going to get down at the very end to what I think are the core, the two core interpretive issues that makes me a premillennialist, not a postmillennialist, and not an amillennialist. That makes sense? Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, what I sketched out for you a couple weeks back on the, on the blackboard, what is, is what is called dispensational premillennialism. Now, they're, are other forms of premillennialism, like historic premillennialism, which is kind of an older form of premillennialism. Historic uh, dispensational premillennialist is what I am. And I'm going to explain why I'm not a postmillennialist and why I'm not an amillennialist. And this has to do with interpretive issues. But let's describe, let me go over, first of all, what each of these three are. I am a premillennialist. You notice the only difference between these three words are the prefixes, pre-, post-, and awe. Pre- means before, post- means after, and awe means no, like atheist- Atheist means they don't believe that there is a the, a God, or they don't believe in theism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. Ah, millennialism is the belief that there is no millennium. Premillennialism is the belief that Jesus Christ will come back prior to, before, pre, a 1,000-year reign in Jerusalem. That's premillennialism. And what I, that's what I sketched out for you on the blackboard, that there is coming a day when, after the tribulation is over, when Christ will come back, that's his second coming, at that time, he will resurrect. Remember, there is a partial first resurrection, a part of the first resurrection at that time. It's so the resurrection of all the tribulation, uh, saints and all the Old Testament saints. And then he, and then coming into the earth, all of the unbelievers are taken away in judgment. Coming into the millennium is only believers. And then there is going to be a millennial or a millennium. That's a thousand years, a millennial reign, a thousand year reign of Christ talked about in Revelation chapter 20. Post millennialism is the belief that The return of Jesus Christ comes post or after the thousand year reign. Okay? Amillennialism is the belief that there is no literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Does this make sense? So pre, I am pre. Christ is coming back prior to or before the millennium, the thousand year reign. Post, he's coming back after the thousand year reign. Amillennialism teaches that he's coming back, that there is no thousand year reign. There is no literal reign of Christ upon the earth. So let me then sketch out, I'm hoping I have better markers than these two. That'll work. Let me sketch out for you the three different perspectives on the millennium and how this would cash out for each system. So I already did the premillennialist perspective. I'm going to do postmillennialism and amillennialism. So a postmillennialist timeline would go like this. You have the cross. Is that big enough for everybody to see, by the way? Okay, so you have the, the cross of Christ here, and then, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, what am I doing? What did I say I was doing? post Then you have the church age, which goes on for an indefinite... Yeah. There we go. Are you ready? Thanks, though. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Whatever you need to do. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, the resurrection of Christ followed by the church age. The, the, according to post-millennialists, the church, the intention of the church age is to Christianize and spread the gospel all around the world and to basically Christianize all people, all nations, all people groups, cultures, governments, institutions, nations, so that the spread of the gospel basically takes over the entire world. So by the post-millennial perspective, the advance of the gospel continues to advance. and It's much like the stock market. It kind of has ups and downs. It has these different valleys and peaks. But eventually, over the course of time, according to postmillennialists, we will Christianize the entire world. Governments will become Christian, institutions, companies, businesses, economic systems. Everything will become very Christianized. At the end of that period of time, wherever that might be, we don't know when everything is Christianized enough, there will follow a, a, a thousand years of peace, prosperity, economic blessing, lack of war, and all of this. At the end of this, while the church is ruling and reigning on the earth, at the end of this, Christ will come back, and he, there will be one resurrection of all the Old Testament saints, of all saints... Old Testament, New Testament, church age, saints, everybody, and then there will be a judgment, and I'll just put a big judge there, and then a J, and then eternity. Okay? This is postmillennialism. The church age Christianizes the world at the end of that period of time when the church is in control, the church has manifested itself, the church is controlling everything, there will be a thousand years of peace, prosperity, economic blessing, and all of this foretold by the Old Testament prophets, not, not literally like they would say that. When this thousand years period of time is, we don't know. But I think a post would say, it's not right now. It hasn't started yet. But when we finally Christianize the world through the spread of the gospel, then this period of peace and prosperity will come. At the end of that, Jesus Christ will come back physically, resurrect all the saints. That, that will be the bodily resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Then there will be the judgment. Unbelievers will depart into hell. Believers will enter into eternity in new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. That is post-millennialism. The return of Christ is post, after the 1,000 years. Dave? Okay, oh, that was the danger with going into this was that I what I wanted to do with the bodily resurrection and laying out the eschatology of that was not to get into the arguments for and against and have to deal with all of those in depth because it would be a very long series. And I don't really want to do that today or even in connection with this because I do want to get into the creation evolution thing before Jess, Jess gets back. And interrupts my Sunday school class again. (laughs) So they would argue that you cannot take, they would argue that you cannot take the thousand years as a literal reign of Christ upon the face of the earth. So they would look at Revelation 20 and they would say the thousand years is yet to come, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be like literally as the Bible describes it in a literal sense. It's symbolic. It's spiritual. There will be this period of time in which Christ will reign from heaven but not on earth. The church really will reign and rule on the earth. Everything will be Christianized. The gospel will spread like leaven through a lump of dough. So if we look at some of the parables and say that the parables taught that. Um, that what starts off as a seed of Pentecost will eventually grow to be this massive tree. That's their idea of the kingdom. That we are establishing the kingdom. The church established the kingdom through the preaching of the word. That's their perspective. No, a Catholic church would be typically amillennialists. Amillennialists. All right. Oh yes. When when the gospel when the gospel has effectively Christianized everything. I see this this kind of started in uh, was it 1600s? I'm trying to think 1600s. It as post-Reformation, and post-millennialism kind of caught on and became sort of the big fad, and, and it was growing in popularity. Because the perspective was one of of hope and expectation and good news, and this is our hope, our hope is to Christianize the whole world. the gospel' is going to spread, everything's going to get better, so we're on this progressive we're on this progressive slight uh, slope up. things are getting better and better and better, more and more Christians more and more Christian institutions and governments and it became very easy to believe in post-millennialism in environments back in Europe and in after the reformation when the church you basically had a, a monolithic church and even in protestantism you had whole areas that were converted and whole governments that were christianized like calvin in, in uh switzerland and like whole sections of germany under luther they saw this massive spread and they said things are going to get better and better and better and better that's we're going to take over the whole world with the gospel and then along came World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War and the Korean War and all the world wars and all the wars that man was involved in all of a sudden brought to a screeching halt this whole idea that things are getting better and better and we're improving getting better and better every day in every way. So, but now post millennialism is kind of on the upswing again. We had a lady in our church for a while who was a post millennialist and she believed in post millennialism and I had a, I had lots of conversations with her and she said according to um, according to you, the Titanic this is her her statement to me, according to you the Titanic is sinking, there's nothing we can do about it. But according to me, we're making everything better. My perspective is one of hope and anticipation and great expectation that God is going to have the victory. And I said, No, according to me, we're on the Titanic, it is sinking, but we are to preach the gospel to get people off onto the lifeboats. That's our job. And when this whole thing sinks, God will God will do all of this. But see there from their perspective, it's the church's work to usher in the kingdom. Okay? Amillennialism, which is no essentially no millennium, and these two perspectives have something in common, and I'll give you that in just a second. Amillennialism is belief that there is no millennium, so the amillennialist timeline would go something like this. Man, I'm running out of... I have to go to the blackboard after all. <laughs> the... Um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, I have to recognize. There are different flavors of premillennialists, postmillennialists, and amillennialists. So what I'm trying to sketch out for you, basically, is sort of the big idea of what they would say. Some of these guys would cash these different elements out in just a little bit of a different way, the same way that I might differ on a few specific things regarding premillennialists with other premillennialists. But I'm giving you sort of the big picture of, of their timeline. So if you know a an amillennialist and you would say, well, he doesn't believe that. OK, well, there are different flavors of amillennialists, just like there are different flavors of premillennialists. Okay. A millennialist timeline goes like this: You still have, of course, Christ. It's got to be a better marker. I will use I will use red because red negates everything, right? So, <laughs> okay. So you still have the cross. You still have Christ's resurrection, and concurrently. After the resurrection, now there, uh, there are different flavors of amillennialists. So, uh, some amillennialists would say, we don't believe that the millennium started right away. We believe that there was a brief period of time, and they would probably cash out all of the events of Revelation or most of the events of Revelation as happening right after the resurrection of Christ in, during the time of the early church and probably up until the time of Nero. And some of them would say Nero was the antichrist, Nero was the beast, of Revelation, So most of the events of Revelation have already taken place. There's very little in Revelation that has yet to take place. So all of it is either already taken place or it is concurrently taking place. So an all-millennialist would say, beginning here you have the oh, the millennium and the church age going on at the same time. So sometime after the resurrection of Christ or before the beginning or around the beginning of the church age, that is when Satan was bound, so that his influence now is less than what it was pre-Christ, before Christ. So Satan's influence now is less than what it was beforehand. He has been bound now, so he's. That's Revelation 20, the binding of Satan. He currently is bound, so during the millennium or the church age, which goes on for an indistinct period of time, might be a could have been a thousand years, but it obviously wasn't. Now it's approaching two thousand years. As this age goes on, you will also have an increase. uh, This is horrible. An increase in signs. What's that? An increase in signs and tribulation and these different things that are projected in the Book of Matthew. So you have earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, and all these things that are going on. And as the church age sort of draws to a close, however long that period is going to time, time is going to be, these things are going to increase to the point where you have. Then the return of Jesus, um, the resurrection of all the saints, the judgment, and then eternity. So the amillennialist perspective would say that the millennium is right now. This is the millennium. This is what was foretold in the book of Revelation. Satan right now is bound at some point toward the end of the church age. He's going to be loosed again, and his activity is really going to pick up. And then Christ is going to come back, put an end to that, resurrect all the saints, have one judgment, and then enter into eternity. Does that make sense? Any questions on those two different perspectives? Now, I know what your questions are. Your questions are, how could anybody in their right mind think that this is the millennium, that Satan is bound right now? And this is where we get to the the two fundamental issues regarding the difference between, and I can draw a line right between these two perspectives, These two perspectives, however you cash them out, have two essential things in common. Number one, both of these perspectives, postmillennialism and amillennialism, view the church and Israel as essentially the same entity. So you can read an amillennialist or a postmillennialist from of old, and they will say things like, they will refer to Abraham as being a member of the church, Adam as being a member of the church, Noah being part of the church, the church continuing today. The Old Testament saints were the Old Testament church. The New Testament saints are the New Testament Israel. So that the church, basically, and Israel are the same entity, called by different names, but all of us are part of that one covenant, that one group of people. Postmillennialists believe that, and amillennialists believe that. They don't make a distinction between the bride of Christ, the church, and Israel. Because they're, from their perspective, Israel forfeited all the promises of the Old Testament covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all of those covenants. They forfeited all of those things through disobedience, And now the church gets all of those blessings in a spiritual sense. So the church now becomes the millennium. This is the reign. We are the ones who are reigning with Christ. And he reigns from heaven. So both of these perspectives conflate Israel and the church. They don't make a clear distinction and say that, according to my perspective, God has laid aside his plan for Israel for a time. We are in the age of the Gentiles right now, and God is drawing in people from Jew and Gentile as part of the bride of Christ, the church, there will come a time when God is done with the program for the church and he will pick up again his program for Israel as a nation and he will deal with them in a national sense. He will fulfill all the promise, promises and covenants that he made to Abraham, to David and to all the descendants of, of Abraham through the different covenants that he made and the promises in the Old Testament prophets. So that's the first thing that these two perspectives have in common. The second thing that both postmillennialism and all-millennialism have in common is that both of them rely heavily, if not almost exclusively, on an allegorical, spiritual, or metaphorical interpretation of Scripture. An allegorical, metaphorical, and those are not swear words, allegorical, metaphorical, or a spiritual interpretation of Scripture. So they would look at, for instance, the millennium, and they would say, we as premillennialists would say, in order for there to be a millennium, in the biblical sense, Jesus Christ has to be here to rule and to reign on this earth. They would say, no, because it's not a literal reign. It's a reign from heaven. It's a spiritual reign through his people, not a physical reign. all millennialists would say, you can't take the thousand years literally. It just means a long period of time. My objection to that is the New Testament had, Greek and Hebrew had words for a long period of time. They didn't use them to describe the millennium. John, six or seven times in six or seven verses, says it's a thousand years. Now if he wanted to say a long period of time, he could have said a long period of time. If he, could have said, if he wanted to say a long age or an indefinite period of time, he would have said indefinite period of time, but he put a number to it. So a post-millennialist and a millennialist would say you can't take the thousand years literally, you can't take the rain literally, you can't take Jerusalem literally, you can't take those blessings literally, you can't take Israel literally. All those things are metaphors, symbols, or, or allegories for an indiscriminate, indefinite, long period of time in which Jesus reigns in some place, in some way, through some group of people. I am a premillennialist only and solely because my interpretation of Scripture drives me to this. It drives me to premillennialism. If I interpret Revelation the same way I interpret every other book of the the New Testament, or the Old Testament, you have to be a premillennialist. There's no way out of it. When I read Paul's epistles, I don't spiritualize them, allegorize them, or metaphorize them. I don't say that when Paul uses a number, he's using it in some apocalyptic sense and it's just indiscriminate. You don't make metaphors and allegories and symbols and spirituals out of things that are not metaphors, not allegories, not spiritual, and not symbols. So if you're going to take every text of Scripture from the same hermeneutical perspective, that is your your scheme of interpretation, you're going to be driven to premillennialism. It's inescapable. And postmillennialists and amillennialists will admit this. They will say a literal interpretation of Revelation drives you to be a premillennialist. They admit that. That's something that, as a pre-millennialist, a post-millennialist, a all millennialist we all agree on this, that if you're going to interpret Revelation literally, this is your perspective. And the only way to get out of premillennialism is to make it an allegory, a symbol, or, a, or some sort of spiritual metaphor of something else. Does that make sense? We had a guy who was an all-millennialist who came here a while back. It's back when we were meeting in the gym, several years ago, actually. And... uh he, uh, he asked me out to have lunch with him one time because he wanted to discuss. He was he was vexed that I was so conservative, so reformed in my perspective, but that I wasn't an all-millennialist. He wanted to convince me to become an all-millennialist. So we hashed it out over Isaiah and a couple of other different passages. And it, it finally boiled down to him, and I said, Look, Mike, you are you interpret Scripture metaphorically and allegorically and symbolically, those passages that deal with the millennium. You interpret them that way primarily because you are committed to this viewpoint. I am committed to a literal interpretation script, of Scripture, which makes me committed to this viewpoint. So your perspective drives your interpretation. My interpretation drives me to a certain perspective. And that's the difference. And an amillennialist and a Postmillennialist has to admit that if they're being intellectually honest. And the ones that are honest will admit that, and they admit that in their writings. Lorraine Bettner and different guys that are post and amillennialists, if you're going to interpret Scripture literally, this is going to be your perspective. They will say that outright, because they know that that's the case. But they don't interpret Revelation literally because they have a pre-commitment to this perspective, and that's wrong interpretation of Scripture. Our perspective is derived from our interpretation of Scripture. We interpret all text in a literal, grammatical, historical fashion, in the way in which they were intended, the way in which the original audience would have understood it, what it meant back then, it means today. You take it in the plain sense of the, of the meaning of the text unless, it, unless you are required by the text to do otherwise and you're not required by the text in Revelation to do otherwise. He said to me, how can you believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth? I said, because the text says so. How can you not believe that? The text says that, but you can't take that literally. I said, why not? What what makes you not able to take that literally? There's There's nothing that I know theologically that requires me to reject that as being a literal thousand years and a literal reign. There's nothing in the context that requires me to adopt a different perspective or a different interpretation of Scripture. And by the way, it's not just revelation. These perspectives, it comes out in all the Old Testament prophets, all the minor prophets, the major prophets, anything that has to do with the future of Israel. Anything that is yet future from this point forward, from today forward, anything that is yet future by my perspective gets allegorized or made a symbol or a spiritual truth down here by these perspectives. They have to. They have to deny that Israel as a nation has any place in the future plan of God because if Israel has a place in the future plan of God, then you're a premillennialist. So that's how you just say Israel's out the door, the church is in, therefore, the church right now is fulfilling everything that was given to the nation of Israel. Thomas. <laughs> there, by literal, we don't mean in a wooden literal sense. The, the literal interpretation of Scripture simply means the way in which the text was intended. So when Jesus says, I am the door, I don't all of a sudden say, oh, Jesus made out wooden hinges and a doorknob. Nobody would say that. That's stupid. Why? Because Jesus was using a metaphor. Jesus was using a symbol to convey a literal truth. So what is the literal truth behind that? You dig into the text and you say, okay, he's using a symbol to convey a literal truth. Revelation, admittedly, is full of a lot of symbols. There are metaphors in Revelation. There are symbols in Revelation. There are words and pra- phrases and passages that have double meaning in Revelation. But you take the passage in the sense in which it was intended. That's what we mean by literal interpretation of the text. So, um, in your service, a better way of if you have said, ah, there's no metaphors, no Allegories, possible. right? Oh, I see what you're saying and I gone back and forth, like, what he Okay okay now I Okay it. hold on there are metaphors hyperboles uh synecdoches 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 how do you pronounce that I'm not a grammar person almost every form of of language, uh, of convention of language, you will find in Scripture. You will find types. You will find foreshadowings. You will find metaphors. You will find symbols. You will find things that prophetically point toward toward a future fulfillment. You will find um, things that represent other things. When you find a metaphor, you interpret the metaphor as a metaphor in the sense in which it was intended. When you will find a passage that speaks of something literal you interpret it literally, you don't make it a metaphor. Do you understand the difference? When there's a metaphor, we know what a metaphor is. I am the door. Now if I got up on a Sunday morning and I said, I am a door. Jesus said, I am the door. But because I don't believe that you should make a metaphor out of anything that's not scripture, I think we should take this as a wood literal sense. So obviously our God is a piece of wood with hinges and a, a doorknob. You would say that's that's silly. You need to interpret the metaphor as a metaphor. The same thing with literal passages of scripture. Is there a yeah, yeah. In my Bible, there is no. How do you know when it's a metaphor when it's, uh, I mean, some things are, but some things are. Is your question kind of connected to that? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay. All of Revelation is signs. <laughs> well, there are signs in the Book of Revelation. There are signs in the old. There are signs in the Old Testament prophets too. For instance, prophets like Isaiah was given a sign. Ezekiel was, was Ezekiel was told to lay on one side for so many days and flip on the other side and lay on that for so many days and to, his wife was going to die as a sign. Isaiah was given a son as a sign. All prophecy contains signs, symbols, pointers, things that point to um, things that must take place and that will take place. Because it gets into the context and what does the, what does the context of the whole book of Revelation, what is, when you read the whole thing, you don't take any one thing and say, okay, what is this, what is this a sign or a symbol of? So we have the mention lampstand. What is a lampstand a picture of? Well, it's a picture of light. And very quickly, you can get off into something, something entirely unrelated to the text in itself. Anytime you get into... Let me put it this way, because I said this earlier, and this is maybe what I need to go back to to make this clear. You interpret the text literally unless the text itself demands something other than that. If the text does not demand it, you interpret it literally. So I am the door. Can you interpret that literally? No, the text, the context, the intended meaning of it obviously demands that we understand that as a metaphor, not as a literal statement in a wooden literal sense. So same thing with revelation. There are signs, there are symbols, there are metaphors, there are hyperboles, there are all of these things, all of this apocalyptic visions and, and uh, things in revelation which are intended to convey a literal meaning. Every text has a literal meaning. Sometimes the literal meaning of the text is conveyed through signs and symbols. Okay? So Revelation is the same way. Am I driven because of something in Revelation 20, am I driven to take that text in any way other than in its literal reading? Is there anything in the context that demands that? For instance, I would ask myself, Jesus said, I am the door. What about that statement keeps me from interpreting it in a wooden literal fashion? Well, it's obvious to all of us. Revelation chapter 20. he There will be a resurrection. He will rule. It will be a thousand years. He says it six times, a thousand years. Is there anything about that that makes me say he can't mean a thousand years? What about that? Why can't I take that as a literal thousand years? What about the text drives me to any other conclusion? Well, then I would have to interpret all the prophets that way. Isaiah really didn't have a son named Maharshal al Hashbaz, but they didn't have one. It just a metaphor, because it's a sign. Isaiah was a prophet, but Revelation is a prophetic book. From the perspective of John, John was writing about something that had happened. John was writing about something that would happen. So, to play devil's advocate with you, am I if I'm going to take if I'm going to say, well, because the term because Revelation at the beginning mentions that there are signs in the book, I have to interpret. Everything in the book is a sign. Or do I interpret signs as signs, metaphors as metaphors, hyperboles as hyperboles, synonyms as synonyms, prophecies as prophecies? Do I interpret the text in the way in which it was given for how it was intended, keeping in mind the type of literature, or do I take everything in Revelation as a sign? What is the thousand years a sign for? And the rain and the resurrection and the angels, are those signs for something else? Are the angels signs for something else? Angels aren't angels, they're something else. What are they if they're not angels? Demons are demons unless there's something else. The 144,000 is not Jews. The tribes aren't tribes. The candles aren't candles. The lampstands aren't lampstands. The the letters to the churches aren't letters to the churches. The churches weren't even real. Where where does the preterist stop and say, well, obviously you can't take everything in Revelation as something other than what it is. And if you're going to take everything in Revelation as something other than what it is, then on what basis do you justify saying it's not this, it's this? That all comes down to the mind of the interpreter. That's what I want it to mean. That makes sense, so at some point you have to say, we take it in the, in the way in which it was intended. Thomas read <laughs> No, you, you do you do because you don't take "I am the door or "I am the way" <laughs> in a wooden literal <laughs> sense.. No. No, I hope you're not taking it that way. That's not the way I'm taking it. What I'm, I'm, I may be stating it a bit strongly, and I'm saying you have to, and this takes work. This is part of the work of being an interpreter. You have to understand a, a, the how it is that we interpret Scripture and the perspective from which we come. And you have to understand that hermeneutics, and that's the art and science of biblical interpretation. Let me give you a quick, a quick definition of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. It is an art in the sense that you get better at it over the course of time, and it takes practice, and it's not something that you pick up immediately. It is a science in the sense that there are rules by which we interpret things. When I pick up a newspaper and I read the front page news story, I don't read the news story, the horoscope, and the comics all from the same interpretive perspective. I pick it up and I say, okay, this is an editorial. This is an obituary. So I don't symbolize the obituary. Here's a little story written by the local pastor, and it's obviously a little story about a boy for an illustration. Okay, that's an illustration. Comics is a whole other interpretive scheme. I don't take comics literally. You mean there really is a dog named Marmaduke, and he really can talk? No fool does that. But when I read the front page of the newspaper, I interpret it from that perspective. So depending on the genre, we take the text in the sense in which it was intended by the author, and it takes work to figure out how did the author intend this. And how did the reader of this passage understand this when it was written to him? That's why oftentimes when I preach or I teach, we go into what the text says, and then I'll say, okay, now put yourself in the place of the first century reader. Think of this from a Pharisee's perspective, how he heard this. That is the task of the Bible student, to step back into the original audience and say, how would the Galatians have understood this letter? From their history, their context, the culture, the things that were going on around them, recent current events, how would they have heard these words? Because... The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It doesn't mean to you something different than it meant to the original author. If you come up with a meaning for Scripture that the original recipients would have said, what? Where did you get that? Then you have arrived at a wrong meaning for the passage of Scripture because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Okay. Hold on. Um Katie had something. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I didn't look at that passage in Greek, so I don't know if there are any other meanings for that word communicate or if you could have used a different word for communicate. But it begs, or it raises the question or actually assumes the answer, It begs the question in the sense that the person who would say that would be assuming that then everything after that is a symbol. But n- none of these folks would say everything in the book of Revelation is a symbol of something else. Nobody would say that. So the question then becomes that everybody has to answer pre, post, and awe, what is intended to be a symbol, and what is not intended to be a symbol? And my perspective is, and this might seem a bit uncharitable to Post an Amillennialists, but my perspective is, you take the text in its literal sense, it's, an, its literal, straightforward, plain meaning of the text, unless something in the text or context drives you to do otherwise. And as my Bible prophecy used to say, if the plain sense makes good sense, then all other sense is nonsense. That's your interpretive hermeneutic. If the plain sense makes good sense, then any other sense is nonsense. You don't take it in any other sense unless it's ridiculous. Well, I know they do. And a lot of these guys, I still read and listen to their preaching. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's an amillennialist. I love R.C. Sproul. He's an amillennialist. James Montgomery Boyce, amillennialist. These guys, I love them. I... I cannot agree with their eschatology, and I think it is just as flawed as the person who says, we need to baptize babies. I, I listen to and love and read a lot of guys that think we should be baptizing infants, but I disagree with their perspective. And they have the same hermeneutical approach when it comes to infant baptism versus believer's baptism that drives them to this perspective. The amillennialist and the postmillennialist says, I'm committed to this first. Therefore, if I find something in the text that doesn't fit with this, it must be a symbol. I say... You take the text in the plain sense unless it drives you to some other conclusion. And when you do that, this is the perspective that you you arrive at. So for one, their perspective drives their hermeneutic, their interpretation of Scripture. For me, my hermeneutic, if I'm going to be consistent, drives me to premillennialism. There's nothing in the context of anything in near Revelation chapter 20 that requires me to say it's something other than a thousand year reign. There's nothing there that requires me to do that. So why would I do that? The only reason I would do that is if I'm committed a priori to one of these. But since there's nothing in the context, that we, there's nothing ludicrous or silly or stupid or unbelievable about a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. So since there's nothing stupid, ludicrous, silly, there's nothing in that text that drives me to another perspective, I take it in the sense in which it's intended or which it was written, which is the plain sense. If the plain sense makes good sense, then all our sense is nonsense. There's no need to allegorize it. In all fairness to all three of these perspectives and everybody in this room, all of us engage in some degree, all of us approach scripture with certain presuppositions. You have to. I approach scripture with all kinds, and I can give you a list of the presuppositions that I approach. I think I can defend those presuppositions, that you take the text in the same way in which it was intended, that you take it literally unless forced to do otherwise, that you interpret all the passages of scripture equally. Metaphors as metaphors, symbols of symbols. Those are all presuppositions. Those are all things that I approach the text with up front. And I'm honest with myself. Now, I also have certain theological things that creep in, and this is the danger whenever we interpret scripture. If I had a class on hermeneutics, I would do this, but anytime you interpret scripture, you always run the danger of reading into the text something you think is already there. And you have to work hard not to do that. Because how many of us have read a text thinking it said something, and then you get in and you study it, or you hear it preached or taught in depth, and all of a sudden you say, man, I never saw that there. I would have never, I thought that was talking about this, and it wasn't. We read passages of scripture all the time from our theological perspective, our upbringing, all of our personal, agenda, everything that we have going on in our mind, we read scripture, and a lot of times we bring all that baggage and we read it into the text before we ever pull it out of the text. And that's the danger with anybody, any, anybody pre-post or amillennialist. It's the danger with me. I constantly have to, in my own study, say, I got to make sure that when I approach this text that I don't assume that things are here that are not here. And that's that's tough. Any other questions? Carol? Yeah, that's right, you had one. The, let me, let me work you through and you're gonna do something now that you're not even aware that you're gonna do, but I'm gonna give you a little exercise and you're gonna engage in something you're not even, you're not even, you do this every day and you don't even think about it. It's so second nature to you. But I'm gonna give you a statement and then I'm gonna walk you through a little exercise and you're gonna do something in the back of your mind subtly that you're not even gonna know that you're doing, okay? Here's my statement. It's in the trunk. It's in the trunk. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Don't don't, don't answer, just a second. Let me unfold it a little bit more, give you some more details. I put my clothes in the trunk. Okay. My next statement, I'm on my way to the airport and I put my clothes in the trunk. Or if I said, I hid them in the trunk so that they wouldn't find them. I hid it in the trunk. I was out in the woods and I found it in the trunk. I was geocaching. I was looking for a little cache out in the woods and it was underneath the leaves in the trunk. And what have I, what have I done? Every statement you have interpreted in light of the facts that I have given you in the surrounding statement. When I said it's in the trunk, you, th- you could have thought to yourself, could be in a, a trunk, like a suitcase trunk, could be in the trunk of a car, the trunk of a tree, could be in the trunk of an elephant. Or if I said there was snot in his trunk, all of a sudden, okay, if I say it's in the trunk, you have all these pictures in your mind. If I say the snot is in the trunk, all of a sudden you know exactly what I mean, right? Why? What you did in your mind is the same thing you do every time anybody speaks to you. If I say to you, I'm going out for lunch after church, you don't, you immediately know exactly what I'm saying. You don't in your mind say, I wonder if he's speaking metaphorically allegorically, symbolically, prophetically. I wonder what he's doing. I wonder if by church he means after the church building is built, and I wonder if by after he means a long time after and not immediately after, and I wonder if by lunch he means food in general. You don't go through that process in your mind. Why? Because you take my statement in the plain sense in which it was given to you at face value in its literal way, Unless all of a sudden I start throwing in all of these details that make you take it in any sense other than which is intended. God has communicated this to us in words, and he intends for us to take it in the normal way that words are used. He used metaphors, he uses symbols, he uses prophecies, he used types, he used shadows, he uses all of those things. He wants us to take his words in the same sense that we take anybody else's words. In the straightforward meaning of, this, of the text, taking symbols as symbols, metaphors as metaphors, etc. Hyperbole is this hyperbole? Yeah, Katie. Yes. Right. A lot of times, this is what people will do. People will, and this is the danger in interpreting scripture. A lot of times, people will say, "Okay, here's the Greek word." Now, this Greek word can mean this, 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 or this, depending on its context. Now, if we take this meaning, and we plug it into the text, look what kind of mysteries we can unfold, right? They say, wow, and then people listen to that and they say, I never saw that in the text before. It's because it never was in the text, it's because the preacher, teacher, Bible interpreter put it into the text before he ever pulled it out of the text. Just because a Greek word is used, and this is, it deals with Anna's question, but not just Anna's question, but any text we study. Just because a Greek word is used doesn't mean that the author intended all of the meanings of that Greek word or any one of the meanings of the Greek word in particular. He might have meant two or more meanings of that Greek word, but more than likely the author means a specific meaning of that Greek word. Well, how do you under, how do you determine which of those meanings he meant? The same way that you did when I used the word trunk. And, and you could, and it's that way with ev- almost every English word has more than one meaning, depending on its context. How do you determine what meaning of the word? You look at the context. What is the author likely driving at in the context? So you interpret trunk in the context of what I said about it. So if I'm talking about geocaching, I said it was under the leaves in the trunk. He probably would say it wasn't an, uh, under the trunk in the car. It was in the trunk of a tree, hidden underneath some leaves. Or if I say to you, I put my clothes in the trunk, it could mean one of two things, right? Could mean a trunk like a suitcase trunk, could be the trunk of the car. But if I said I was out in the woods and I need a place to hide my clothes and I put them into the trunk, you'd probably assume it was the trunk of the tree. So you interpret the word trunk depending on the context. And you take the words that I say in a literal, straightforward fashion. I'm going out for dinner after church. What do I mean by that? You would be silly if I went off onto some magical, mystical interpretation and say, you just take it in a way in which Jim, he's going out to dinner after church. He's going out for lunch. There's no other way to needs to take that. There's nothing about what Jim says that requires us to take it in any way other than he's going out for lunch after church today. See, so you would be doing injustice to me if you took it in a way in which I didn't intend it for it to be taken, right? And I, we do that with God. And that's the study. That's the art and science of hermeneutics. Yeah, Greek words, that's a very good statement. Greek words don't have meanings. They have usages in their context of how the author. And the author, by the way, was not free to use a Greek word however he wanted to. He had to use it in a way that communicated what he wanted to communicate. Just like I'm not, I'm not free to use the word trunk in any way that I want to. Hey, isn't that comfortable trunks that you're sitting on today? Well, they're not trunks, they're chairs, right? I'm not free to redefine what you're sitting on as a trunk. I have to You're sitting on chairs, not trunks. And it would be an b- abuse and misuse of the language for me to call something something it's not. And this comes back to this issue here. Maybe we should stop here. I believe it's an abuse and misuse of the Greek language to call this the binding of Satan, what we're experiencing today. If Satan is bound today, listen, if Satan is bound today, are you kidding me? What is it like when he's loosed? I I if this is the binding of Satan, I have no I can't even fathom what it's going to look like when he's loosed. That what does binding mean? When it says in Revelation that Satan was bound so that he would deceive the nations no longer. What does that mean? He's just deceiving them a little bit? Continually, but less than he was before Christ? See, these things make abuses, th- these things abuse the Greek language. It gets to the point where n- you can't be sure of any- what anything is saying, and it all comes back to the mind of the interpreter. depravity, I don't need Satan. No, you don't, but it's if he is the God of this world and he is roaring about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, what does binding mean then? He's hindered or limited a little bit? Well, I believe that he was hindered and limited back here by the providence of God. I don't believe that at any point since the garden that Satan has been entirely free to do all that he wanted to or this place would be a bloodbath. I believe that by the providence and the sovereign good grace of God, he has kept Satan on a leash the whole time. We have never seen the fury of Satan ever in this world as to what he would want if he were to be let loose. So in what sense is he bound? What does that binding mean? Well, binding becomes absolutely nothing if you say that this world is Satan-bound. This can't be Satan-bound. That's, that's, with all due respect to guys that I love, that's ludicrous. This is not Satan's inactivity that we're seeing around us. This is not just human, this is not just human activity that's going on. Yeah, there you have a good example of Satan being limited even before Christ. He has always been limited. He has always been hindered. Even the depravity of man is, in a sense, restrained by God. If the depravity of man was allowed to express itself full force, you cannot even imagine. You think this world is bad, you cannot even imagine the utter chaotic bloodbath that this place would be. I believe that God restrains the free will of His fallen creatures every minute, every second of every day all over the place. He keeps people from sinning all the time. He has to, because if man was allowed to express his darkness to the full extent of how he would love to express it, it would just be utter chaos. Okay, so does this... This helps at least give you a perspective of what the other positions believe, right? Okay, I'm a premillennialist, and let me give you the two reasons why. A consistent interpretation of Scripture drives me to this. I interpret the prophets the same sense in which they were given. When Isaiah wrote this, this is what he meant. When the angel told Mary, he is going to sit on the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Israel forever. I believe that's what he meant. I don't believe it's interpreted. I don't believe that anybody who heard anything up to the church age about the Old Testament anybody had ever had would have arrived at post-millennialist or Jesus was not an all-millennialist. The disciples were not all millennialists, the Old Testament prophets were not all millennialists, and no Jew prior to prior to the birth of amillennialism, was ever an amillennialist. No Jew that you ever talked to from the Old Testament or New Testament era ever would have said the promises to David and our nation are not to be taken in a literal, straightforward fashion. None of them would have ever said that. So if nobody for the 4,000 years of human history ever would have arrived at this interpretation based upon what the prophets said, then I see no reason to read that into the prophets myself. So I am a premillennialist for two reasons. A consistent approach to Scripture drives me to this conclusion. And second, I believe a a consistent approach to Scripture requires that I view the church and Israel as two separate entities. And they cannot be conflated. They don't overlap and they they don't blend into each other. The one is not replaced by the other. All right. Let's pray and then we'll be done. That's enough for one Sunday. Father, we are grateful to you for the blessing of your grace and for giving us your word. We believe that your word is clear. And any lack of understanding that we have is due to ourselves entirely. We know that we approach your word with different presuppositions and different things in our minds and our hearts. And we pray, God, that you'd make us good, clean, honest, straightforward interpreters of of your word, that we might rightly understand the things that have been clearly given to us. You have given us these things not to mystify us, not to confuse us, but to give us hope and to allow us to trust in you. And we pray that that would be the end of what we do when we read these passages of Scripture. Your grace to us has been so good and so abundant. We thank you for that, and we commit our time to follow here in our church service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.